Okay, right, here we go again for another Film Club edition of the Filmwork Podcast. Hello, I'm Stephen Hurst, and I'll be hosting alone this week, um, filling in just another gap as we head towards our finish. And I decided to pick a film that I've been waiting a long time to do on the Filmwork Podcast that I did not want to uh, let escape, and that is a war movie called Catch-22, based on the novel by Joseph Heller. We get trapped many times on the podcast deciding what to do and um, on some podcasts I wanted to cover uh, literary uh, adaptations and you know because there's a list of uh, films or even plays that I'm, I'm a big fan of that I wanted to cover on the show but that just ended up going on a spiral of well you know then we've got to do things like Shakespeare oh god let's do a Shakespeare podcast Shakespeare on film um, or oh, let's do modern playwrights let's do David Mamet talk about Glengarry Glenn Ross let's just talk about novels um, so all over the place so this this is a, a, a considered a modern film, even though it was uh, written some time ago back in the 50s, I think. Um, uh, but it is one of my favourite books. It's not my favourite book. I think the, that still goes to Wuthering Heights, which um, we probably won't cover on the podcast anytime soon, despite the fact that it's had many literary adaptations, uh, cinematic adaptations from the literary source material. But um, Catch-22 was made into uh, one film, and this is back in... 1970 is when the film was made and uh, it was uh, directed by Mike Nichols and uh, a hell of a cast. I mean, uh, I don't know how well known some of these cast members were back then, but when you look at them, there are some pretty big names uh, going on. I mean, Alan Arkin is in the uh, lead role of uh, Usarian. Um, you've got the likes of uh, Martin Sheen in a supporting role, Anthony Perkins, um, John Voight, uh, Orson Welles, who was obviously uh, big at the time in <laughs> both senses of the word, um, uh, and then the likes of Bob Newhart, Charles Grodin, uh, Art Garfunkel, a very young uh, Art Garfunkel, um, and uh, Martin Balsam as the uh, the colonel on the base, uh, and Buck Henry, who also uh, wrote the screenplay, um, I believe, uh, for this film. So, uh, made back in 1970, it didn't do... Uh, that much business i don't think i I think it made back its money and and a little bit of change but um it wasn't a big hit i think the film that everyone went to see in 1970 was uh well the war movie or the or the comedy war movie was uh mash uh which obviously uh spawned a very successful tv show as well catch 22 did not but i uh uh, much prefer catch 22 i think it's infinitely more clever and infinitely more funny um the stuff that goes on in here um because everything is um well a lot of things sort of relate to you know the, the phrase catch 22 the, and you're given a, 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 a an example spelt out at the beginning of the film when Yossarian who is a, a bomber uh, this is set in World War Two, he is a, a, a bomber and um, uh, he's supposed to go on 25 missions and then get rotated out um, but the the people in charge keep upping the missions you know it goes up it goes from 25 then up to 50 then it goes to 70 75 80 and so on so that the, there's never a way out um, but there's a way that they can be grounded and you can be grounded if you're crazy. Um, so he goes to the doctor and the doctor says, yes, I have to ground anybody um, that's crazy. And yes, anyone that keeps flying these missions is obviously crazy. So therefore, I, I should I have to ground them. So he says, OK, then I keep flying these missions. I want you to ground me. And then the doctor immediately says, no, now I can't ground you because you've asked me to. <laughs> anyone that asks to be grounded knows that it's uh, stupid to fly these missions. Therefore, they are not crazy. So basically, 
basically, you know, damned if you do, damned if you don't kind of thing. And that's sort of generally the way this sort of satire works in this film. Um, and, and there's some just great stuff. Just in the uh, the dialogue in, in every scene that you get with what they're talking about, the, the nonsensical nature of war is, is basically what it's harping on about. Um, so if we look a little bit closer at some of the scenes in here, Yosarian comes up against uh, uh, quite a lot of people, and, and on both, uh, you know, both uh, sort of sides of the people who, who are sort of uh, uh, work below him, and then those who are his uh, superiors, and especially those to the side of him, you know, and, and what everybody is up to. You've got a guy that keeps uh, uh, crashing his plane. Uh, constantly, so he refuses to fly with this guy um, because he's forever crashing, and therefore, you know, he doesn't want to fly with him because he'll end up getting killed because the guy just keeps dipping his uh, plane into the bloody, you know, Mediterranean. <laughs> um, so, uh, so that's one thing that comes back later on at the end of the film, and, and then makes perfect sense. You've got a character called uh, Milo, played by John Voight, who. Uh, he, he basically becomes an, an an entrepreneur. He basically is turning uh, uh, business, uh, and he, he claims to be working for the men, for the mess, um, and it's and it's for for everybody. So he develops uh, an enterprise called M and M. M and M is basically his initials, but uh, yeah, M and M Enterprises. And first of all, he's buying and selling eggs at a profit. Um, but it's not long before he then starts digging into. Uh, the actual equipment that they use. Um, <laughs> uh, there's a great scene where he's walking along with, with uh, uh, the colonel, and they're talking about the stuff that they're selling. And then he talks about uh, selling linen or you know sheets. Um, and then the colonel is like, "Where did you get all this uh, material from?" And then suddenly it does a, a jump cut to Yosarian in his plane, going, "Where the hell's my parachute?" <laughs> so they get a lot of <laughs> humor like that, sort of uh, jumping in the way where he's uh, always being a victim um, of. Of what's going on around him, so he doesn't have a parachute because it's been sold by M and M Enterprises in order to make a buck. But the sinister thing going on at the beginning of that scene when Milo first uh, comes in and uh, starts making all these proposals to the general is that they're walking down uh, the sides of the runway and you see a plane landing behind them. Uh, it's clearly, you know, there's something. Uh, it's in distress because it, something's gone wrong. There's smoke coming out of it, and it screeches past them straight, you know, behind the camera. Where you hear this god almighty screech and roar, and then crash and explosion sound. And then as uh, the, the two characters slowly walk past the camera, and it pans around to show you down the other end of the uh, runway, you see that this plane has crashed. Um, and quite possibly has killed whoever is on board. And these two are just talking like, you know, it, like it's nothing. They don't go to help. They'll just continue to talk about the business of what's going on. And, you know, it's things like that. I mean, first of all, it's unbelievably clever filmmaking. I and mean, Mike Nichols has really done a job. Um, I mean, right from the beginning, there's a nice uh, uh, elongated one shot. Um, which is interesting to watch. But he's done some superb camera work in, in this film. And it's all... Uh, you know, adds to the element of the the, the sort of surprise and the uh, the black humour of what's going on in every scene. Um, yeah, some superb stuff going on there. But that is a, a very clever. I mean, it's clever in the sense of. I mean, the plane that actually landed obviously just completely shot by. They already had the crash one in place ready. You know, to sort of be filmed. And so the other plane just kept. Uh, driving down into the distance out of frame so you know the old bait and switch type thing um but it's still you know clever stuff you know all being done in one take um so uh and, and you know i mean that's one of the many horrors of war 
that we get to uh, sort of you know have have a look in on with here. So you have got Milo's Enterprise, and it towards the end of the film it becomes a you know almost like a Stalinist regime. He's riding around you know with lights on him around the the old town with lots of military officers around him while he's standing up uh, uh, tall in this jeep or whatever it is that's driving around, looking like this uh, imperialist military leader. Um, they get involved with prostitution. That becomes um, a, another money-making game from M&M Enterprises. Um, you get plain, just plain old murder uh, in this film as well. I mean, one guy uh, gets chopped in half by the propellers of a plane. I mean, how is that for gory effects in 1917? It's amazing, too. A guy standing out on the sea on this raft, and this guy dives at him with his plane and literally chops the fucker in two. And you just see this pair of legs standing there that just fall into the sea afterwards. It's pretty sick. Um... But it even goes as far as having uh, rape and murder as well. Uh, not in the explicit sense of you see someone getting raped and then murdered. You see a dead body and then you hear about the aftermath of it when your Sarian goes to confront the officer that's committed this crime. Uh, he's murdered a, a, a teenage girl and then thrown her out the window uh, so that she couldn't she wouldn't tell anybody on him. Um, but then it goes back to the black humour in the sense of when you hear the police coming... Um, your Saren is screaming at this guy going you've done this you've done this you're going to get taken away that's it your life's over and the moment the police come in they arrest they arrest your Saren instead for something completely different and leave the other guy alone they don't give a damn about the girl out on the street um, yeah so there's some pretty sick stuff going on here Gar- Art Garfunkel's uh, role is quite interesting because uh, he's like the, the doomed young pilot in the movie and he has an interesting conversation with an old Italian man who claims to be over 100 years old and he is basically, you know, he has no morals. He's basically just on the side of whoever's in charge. And Garfunkel's character is, is, is you know, is trying to, uh, you know, assess this, uh, come to terms with it and challenge it. Um, and then ultimately, obviously, he, he ends up losing his life later on in the film, you know, for trying to do like the right kind of thing. Whereas this other guy is getting by just by going along with whoever's in charge. Um yeah, some nasty stuff. Uh, the guy um, who gets killed by the plane, uh, once the uh, he's dead, the guy that was flying the plane realizes what he's done and decides to commit suicide, you know, on the spot. He basically flies his plane into a mountain. Um, and you see it uh, being watched on the ground by Eusarian and a couple of other characters, including the doctor, the doctor that, refu- that refused to ground him. And the doctor says that he was uh, logged as being on board that flight because every now and again he's supposed to uh, uh, sort of rack up flight time. Uh, so what he does, he just gets a mate to write it down for him like once a month or whatever just to keep the uh, superiors happy. But he doesn't actually get on the plane. He doesn't actually go on the trips. Um, but uh, the weird thing, um, and this relates more to the book than the film, is that when the plane crashes and because the doctor was logged on there, he actually gets registered as dead. <laughs> um, and uh, you kind of get a little bit of a sense of this in the film where people just stop stop recognizing him. Um, but in the book in particular, it's like people, you know, just stop recognizing him full stop. And it, he eventually has lost his soul because he's he was the. Uh, uh, his name was on board the uh, the manifest for this plane, so he's effectively dead. Um, and that's the great thing about the book.
book, you get lots and lots of more little jokes like that with supporting characters. Um, I mean, there's the uh, uh, a Native American character called Hungry Joe. Um, I believe in the film, that's the guy that gets chopped up by the plane. But he is forever getting kicked off the uh, the reservation, as it were, uh, due to the uh, constantly moving uh, politics of what's going on in the war. Um, you don't get any of that in the film, sadly. But that's what's uh, it's one of those ones where I go, yes, you definitely can read the book after seeing the film if you do it that way around and it won't it it won't matter you'll you'll get even more out of it um but uh, hey if you've read the book already then go see the film the film is good the film is very well done uh, but obviously naturally they sacrifice uh, uh, many things in here um <laughs> so uh awesome wells i'll mention briefly being that i'm a, a big fan of his he basically just comes in for a couple of scenes and it's basically he's the general to sort of come in and oversee things. Uh, and there's a very amusing scene where uh, he comes in and he's got his uh, son uh, or son-in-law who's married to his uh, daughter. Um, and the daughter's very pretty and everyone's just, you know, eyeballing her when they when uh, they come in and... Uh, uh, when she's been standing there for too long, Wells asks, is anyone going to get this lady a seat? And then suddenly the whole mess just flocks towards her with, her each, with all their chairs. She ends up with this big stack of chairs in front of her. So it can get a bit sort of uh, a bit, a bit goofy funny in places. And it's certainly with the scenes where Orson Wells about where things definitely go that way because he's forever wanting to take people out and shoot them. Um, <laughs> either for interrupting proceedings or just for being a bunch of numbskulls. Um, and it culminates with uh, a scene where him giving out badges to everybody uh, for uh, dropping bombs on the water as opposed to actually on a target and uh, Yossarian's character is there but he's naked and because he, he doesn't want to wear his clothes and there's a beautifully timed bit of comedy where Orson Welles when he first realises that the guy standing in front of him has no clothes on and he's about to give him a medal and Wells really soaks that moment out so that you get a laugh initially by the look that he gives him and then you get that extra laugh because he's staring at him for such a long time before he says anything and then the line that he does deliver after that is uh is pretty funny as well which i won't spoil for you it's uh but yeah that's uh that's good stuff um and things just get out of control things just get more and more ridiculous and haywire uh, as they go on and because um, i mean uh, what i mean milo's enterprise has gotten so out of control that he's he's making deals with the enemy in order to make money so they can come out of the war rich. Um, so they actually make a deal with the enemy to bomb their own base uh, at, at night time. Uh, and this is where you get the unfortunate demise of Art Garfunkel's character um, within that. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, so uh, yeah, nut stuff. Um, but it's, a, it, it's the incidental uh, character stuff that keeps me coming back. Uh, even just some of the character names, Chaplin, Chaplin and Major, Major. Um, and Major Major is ridiculous in the book because I think his name is actually Major Major Major. You know, someone, his last name was Major and the parents called him Major and then he ends up as a Major. And uh, yeah, Major Major gets his time to shine where uh, he is uh, promoted and given a job that he doesn't want to do. So the best way he decides to go about it is to, uh, whenever he's in his office, he doesn't want anyone to come in and disturb him. 
Um, but whenever he leaves his office, then he says to to the guy who is subordinate, then you can let people in to see me. So when the chaplain tries to go see him, uh, he's not allowed in uh, because the major's in his office. But the moment the major sneaks out the window, the guy then lets him in to see the major. But obviously when he goes in, the major isn't there. So it's another one of those weird sort of Catch-22 joke type things that happen. And you're saying, like, what are you talking about? He's, he's there, but he's not there. And he's like, oh, yeah, you mean you can, you can see him? Yes, you can see him. Of course you can. You can go see him any anytime. Uh, but when? But when he's not there. <laughs> uh, yeah. Ridiculous. Yes, I know. Um, but there's uh, Pepper throughout the film. There is a flashback going on. Because at the start of the film, you see Yosarian get uh, injured. He's stabbed. Um, and then he's forever having these flashbacks to an incident in uh, a bombing run where he's looking after someone who uh, has been injured, a guy called Snowden. Um and I think that's where you get uh, the harshest uh, of uh, one of the realities in this with the uh, the reveal of what's happened to Snowden at the end of the film, which I won't spoil, but it, it made me go, holy shit, this film was made in 1970. That, you know, is phenomenal. Um, uh, and it had quite the effect on me. So uh, it was a good film. So I don't want to go uh, and spoil every scene that's in here because it is basically just going to end up, not necessarily a quote fest, but literally, uh, you know, listing all the things that go on. But it, it goes to some very, very dark places, but it does it in such an amusing fashion um, and it very, very ra- rarely lets up. So it's a favourite for me. And, uh, you know, war films aren't necessarily a genre that we've tackled all that much. It's only when we've done director's work like Steven Spielberg we've obviously talked about Schindler's List and uh, Saving Private Ryan the likes of that um beyond that uh, not a lot really I know I talked uh, touched upon Brian De Palma's uh, Vietnam movie uh, Casualties of War which is uh, still a favorite of mine but um yeah war movies uh, are considered doing a podcast but again it's it's become so wide and varied i mean do you say films that are made in the modern era which is probably where i'd focus most of my attention but then again catch 22 is not necessarily in the modern era anymore uh neither was uh, the dirty dozen which was uh, a year or two before this um and that's a, a terrific film that you know is definitely worth mentioning and going back and seeing and you go back and you watch that and you go god damn it why didn't um uh, Tarantino, you know, do an actual version of that instead of what Inglourious Bastards turned out to be, because the Dirty Dozen still has a cracking uh, cast to this day. I mean, names that are still remembered: Charles Bronson, Lee Marvin, John Cassavetes, um, uh, Jim Brown, Telly Savalas, you know, Donald Sutherland, um, and it's uh, it's superb, and certainly not without its charm and humour. Um, a, a two and a half hour movie is a hell of a slog but a hell of a, a sort of gripping mission at the end of it as well so uh, if I can add a little couple of uh, extras here uh, into this podcast uh, The Dirty Dozen is certainly one of them and uh, another one if I can stick with uh, that sort of era is uh, although made much more recently 1997 is uh, Terence Malick's uh, The Thin Red Line which um, I had not seen any Terence Malick at that point I mean alright to be fair that was only his third film but he did two his other two were made back in the 70s but um, The Thin Red Line is um, as arty as you can get when it comes to uh, 
making a film you know set in the war about the war about you know the, the anti feelings about, about the war um and anyone that's seen a Terence Malick film before or since uh will know what to expect from this i mean but chances are if you've seen a Terence Malick film it probably was this one i think it's still his best um anything he did after this that doesn't come close although they've all got a very very similar style of the camera just floating around and flashbacking and swinging back and forth and with voiceover constant voiceovers from your leads but uh with the thin red line you had it's i mean a massive ensemble cast which somehow sean penn seemed to uh get, get the lead on um but uh you look at it you've got uh, terrific performances from the likes of nick nolte as one of the commanders who wants to um you know, gets get the job done and and impress his uh, uh, superiors who are younger than him. You know, in this case, it's uh, John Travolta in in one scene. Um, you've got um, uh, John Cusack uh, doing the business in here. John C. Riley in a tiny little role; he barely registers. Uh, Elias Coteus, I think, is superb in this film and doesn't get enough credit for it but he as the sympathetic sergeant who refuses to do uh the work you know john Cusack's character comes in and does what needs to be done when uh elias katesi's character refuses uh woody harson has a superb a small role in it george clooney has a pointless cameo um like i said sean penn he's there kind of sort of throughout uh he's, he's basically there to talk to the guy that is actually kind of the main guy but um, as sort of his conscience or or, or whatever, um, but there's so many notable uh, noticeable names. I mean, uh, Thomas Jane has a small role. Nick Stiles in there. Uh, John Savage, uh, Mark Boone Jr. People will recognise. Uh, Don Harvey, who I've mentioned on several uh, things before. Tim Blake Nelson, um, Jared Leto. You get to see get shot. <laughs> Uh, Miranda Otto is uh, like uh, Ben Chaplin's wife back home. Ben Chaplin is the. Uh, I was coming to these guys last, but um, basically it, it, it's three new guys that the, the advertising was focusing on. One being Adrian Brody, which if you see the film makes no sense because he's barely in it. And as I understand it, Adrian Brody is pissed about that because he was um, uh, severely cut uh, out of the movie. Um, I mean, Dash Mihok, uh, who you might recognise from stuff, uh, has more of a role uh, than he does, and he's barely, you know, mentioned in the press. Um, but the two that you do get a bit of time with is uh, Ben Chaplin's character, who is the one who all he's doing is thinking about his wife back home. Um, that's all he's thinking about. That's all he wants to get back to. And then he gets his heart broken when she dumps him for an another officer, and you know, an officer who's back home, and he gets his heartbreaking letter. Uh, about that and it really is crushing but the main role is uh, uh, Jim Caviezel um, and this film really put Jim Caviezel on the map he started getting you know the big map roles after this um, and uh, and he's terrific he's absolutely superb as this pacifist um, and uh, yeah it's definitely worth watching um, and even though the film is three hours long you've got all these different things going on it's an easy ride through. It's a very uh, soothing ride. It's got a very, very terrific score by Hans Zimmer doing something different, um, which is always nice when he does that because he usually does different very well when he tries. Um, but it's, the, it's one of those films where you, you hear about it had so many other people in it that were cut out. Like, I believe, uh, I think the, the sort of main one who was chopped was uh, Gary Oldman, um, but I know there's certainly uh, Mickey Rourke, I believe, was also um, 
cast and they filmed stuff but it, it got cut out you kind of go you kind of want that but you know give us that four hour cut <laughs> with all these uh p- people that are chopped out i love to see the scenes that they were in um but you know maybe maybe someday maybe not uh yeah so i just wanted to add uh, that one on the end there because it's definitely worth watching i knew we weren't going to get around to covering it and i knew i was going to fly through uh catch 22 so if uh, you know hey war is a terrible thing and all that but my god have there been some powerful movies uh made about it maybe one day we'll actually uh before we leave we'll mention oliver stone and uh, some of the terrific work he's done because you know platoon that's another one not to miss but there you go. That's just a little filler for this week as we uh, shuffle on. So we'll be back next week with something else. We do have a uh, uh, a guest coming to the podcast, a returning guest coming to the podcast again soon before we finish. We are going to finish around about episode 310 for anyone that's curious. So we're getting there. Uh, it'll be sort of uh, April, May time when we uh, close down for good, just to keep reminding people um, that we have a few more episodes to go. Um, but next week we'll be back with something else. See you then. <laughs>